If you like listening to my conversations with interesting people, you'll love listening to them or watching them on Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get access to these interviews early and ad-free, as well as bonus episodes from my YouTube channel and exclusive series you can't find anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversationswithjoe to support the podcast and help promote content that matters. Hey everybody, on Monday I did a video on the coronavirus because apparently there's nothing else going on in the world right now, I guess. But uh, it was a really important topic, so I really wanted to get um, some words in from an expert on this, somebody who's really been following this kind of thing for a long time. So I reached out to David Quammen. David, if you saw Monday's video, is the author of the book Spillover, Animal Infections in the Next Human Pandemic. And it came from some reporting that he did with National Geographic following some teams who were tracking Ebola across Africa, as well as some other outbreaks around the world. He kind of took this experience and turned it into this book. I shared some of the clips of this interview with David uh, in the video on Monday, but there was a lot more that we talked about. He had a lot of really cool points that I couldn't all get in that video. So I'm sharing the entire interview here, but before you watch it, I, I do have a couple of caveats. So I talked to David at the beginning of my research, which means two things. One, I asked a lot of really dumb questions because I was so very early in my research. This was kind of part of that. And uh, two, a lot has changed since we talked. But I think he brings an interesting perspective to this whole thing, and he makes a lot of really good points about, you know, where viruses like this come from, how they actually make the jump into humans, and what we can expect in the future. But anyway, I'd like to thank David again for his time. This was a really fun interview to do. And for the rest of you, just sit back, get comfy, and enjoy this conversation with David Quammen. But yeah, so, I mean, are you getting called to do a lot of interviews? I mean, is this like day in, day out right now, or? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> wow. Uh, since, um... When did this start? I guess we all became aware of it maybe second or third week in January. Um, the watchdogs yeah. became aware of it on New Year's Eve, I know. That's when mm. the, the emerging virus science guys that I know got the alarm bell that there was something happening in, uh, in Wuhan, China. And we started to hear about it in mid-January. I did a, an op-ed for the New York Times that ran on January 28th. And I've been swept up in it ever since then. Um, I was in Tasmania for three and a half weeks doing research for another book. And I ended up spending half my time in Tasmania doing interviews with Radio oh, New yeah. Zealand and China Television and various different things. So, yeah. so anyway, yes, uh, it's got, I'm one of the many, many people who is pretty busy with this thing. Well, so much has changed just since we agreed to do this interview in the last yeah. week. I mean, just in the last few days with state of emergency, officially a pandemic, NBA is canceling everything, I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. March Madness, the, the yeah. NCAA tournament is canceled. The Masters is canceled, even, the, you know, that's held outdoors, but, you know, big crowds. Yeah. Um, outdoors is good for viruses because UV light kills viruses, but um, still. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, before we get into all that, I, I would love to just kind of start with, with you. And I mean, you do a lot of work for National Geographic, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. When I was a kid, oh, okay. When I was a kid, I thought that would be the coolest job of all time. Um, like you've got to be the most interesting guy at every party you go to, you know? Um, but then after taking a good look at your book and everything. I'm like, no, that sounds like a nightmare. Like everything about that sounds <laughs> like nothing I want anything to do with. Which book was this? Spillover. Spillover. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, uh, 
a, a little bit of that was researched for a story in National Geographic that ran in 2007 called Deadly Contact. Okay. And I was interested in the idea in the, in the subject of emerging viruses before that. So when they asked me to do a story on it, I said, yes, it just so happens that I was hoping you'd ask me to do that. And uh, I did research in uh, the Congo forest and in Australia and in Cambodia and at the CDC for one magazine story. That's one um, of the great things about working for National Geographic, at least at, at that period of time. Things are changing constantly there too. Yeah. Um, does it open a lot of doors to say you're with them? It does open doors. Yeah. 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 Um, you can walk into a cholera hospital in Dhaka, Bangladesh, um, and knock on the door of a busy doctor and say, I'm the guy from National Geographic. And he's likely to say, oh, well, come on in and give you an hour. You know, if you say, I'm the guy from Harper's Magazine, he says, what? Right. You know, although I've, I've had a great time working for Harper's Magazine in the past yeah. and, and other magazines. Um, but National Geographic, yeah, is a is a global brand that people recognize. But the downside of that is sometimes they, they say, oh, you're the guy from National Geographic. Come on in. I love your channel. <laughs> and the writers all cringe when they say uh, that. Magazine writers cringe when they hear that. <laughs> yeah. Or they, or they think that like you're a, a like you own the the channel or something like that. Like I used to work at the Dallas Morning News. I live here in Dallas, and, and I worked in the advertising side, so I wasn't even a reporter or anything. But but whenever people heard that I worked there, they're like, "What's your beat?" Yeah, the Dallas Morning News. It's got a nice ring to it, of course. It's I mean, it's, it's, it sounded kind of cool. So what did you say? Uh, crime, <laughs> news, <laughs> stuff. Well, I, I was a headline writer, so I guess I my beat was trying to sell furniture or something <laughs> not really that important but well so so what was it that got you so excited or interested i guess and um excited is a weird word to use and the 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 virus um what got me excited what got me interested deeply interested is because is uh ecology and evolution okay um i read the new yorker stories uh that became the book the hot zone by Richard right. Preston when they ran in the New Yorker. Might have been the first thing I ever heard or read about Ebola virus. Like a lot of people, I was mesmerized by those two wonderful magazine pieces. Mm -hmm. By the later, by the book, not so much. Um, so I started to read about emerging viruses and I wrote a few things about it. And I wrote a little bit about Ebola and, and got to know some Ebola scientists, got more and more interested in that. And then in 2000, in the year 2000, I was on an assignment for National Geographic walking across essentially the forests of the Congo Basin with a wonderful American explorer, conservationist, biologist named Mike Fay, who was doing a 2000 mile survey bushwhack through the forests of Central Africa. Wow. And I was following him for weeks at a time and doing three stories. And at one point we walked through Ebola habitat and we knew it was Ebola habitat because there was a famous Ebola outbreak among people that had occurred on a village um, at the edge of this forest block. So we knew Ebola was there in this forest, living in, all viruses must, must live in cellular creatures, so it was living in presumably an animal, mm -hmm. species unknown in this forest, and we were walking through it. 
and that focused my mind that got me very interested it was spooky but it was fascinating and what i was interested in is as i said the ecology and evolutionary biology of viruses it turns out they do have ecology and evolutionary biology ecology well viruses have to live in cellular creatures so some of them live in animals and then when we come in contact with those animals and kill them and butcher them and eat them we come in contact with those viruses and sometimes it becomes a pandemic virus for us mm -hmm. that's ecology evolution is the fact that viruses evolve uh, whether or not they are living things there's no question that they evolve by good old-fashioned darwinian natural selection the survival of the fittest variation among populations limited resources competition the result is adaptation that's natural selection so anyway well, so i imagine being there where it all happened really clarifies all that i mean it's, it's yes. a very abstract thing from over here you know? yes it became very concrete yeah. uh, I, I write about this in spillover uh, my book on this um that uh on that tr on that tr that leg of the expedition was about 10 days of walking through this ebola forest and we walked in river sandals and shorts bushwhacking through the jungle um, sleeping on the ground in tents at night crossing swamps crossing blackwater streams up to our waist with um, uh, with about a dozen Gabonese guys as the forest crew carrying most of the heavy equipment carrying the food carrying the tents Mike Fay in the lead behind one guy with a machete cutting a hole through the forest so the guy with the machete the point man and then Mike Fay with his notebook and then me with my notebook and then the rest of the guys stayed back an hour behind and sometimes it was a great photographer on this project, Nick Nichols. And he was with us sometimes, but he was also shooting in other parts of the forest on sort of stakeouts uh, at other times. So we went through the forest that way. Um, uh, so now we're going through this Ebola forest and around the campfire one night, we always ate around the campfire. A couple of guys on this Gabonese crew start talking about when Ebola struck their loved ones in this village on the river just east of where we were started telling me about it um you know killed five family members of one guy he was holding his niece when um, essentially when she died you know uh, bleeding um and uh telling these horrific stories uh in this small village and then one of these guys said oh and they were talking in french and my French is so-so, but Mike Fay was helping me with the, the French. One point, this fellow uh, said, oh, in the forest, um, when this Ebola outbreak was killing the people in our village, um, Sofiano and I, his friend, saw a pile of 13 dead gorillas nearby in the forest. And I said, what? This went into my notebook immediately. 13 dead gorillas? a pile of 13 dead gorillas and i knew enough about ebola then to know that ebola kills gorillas and mm -hmm. chimpanzees ferociously just as just as devastating to them as it is to humans so this pile of 13 dead gorillas outside of this ebola struck village represented to me concretized for me this re reality that diseases pa pass back and forth between species by viruses pack pass back and forth between species. Mm. Gorilla disease, human disease, same disease. And ultimately, it comes from some other animal that carries it without being devastated, without being killed, 
that's the reservoir host. Maybe it's a bat, maybe it's a rodent, maybe it's right. something else, maybe it's a spider. Nobody knows still. Ecology, evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. that, and that's the that's really the moment um, when I got when I got um, book scope interested in the right. subject. Yeah. So, so when you when you heard the story about the thirteen dead gorillas, and I remember hearing about that in the in the book, um, they already knew that they could die from Ebola, and that just kind of like yes. snapped something in your brain, and you're like, oh, that's the, that's the crossover, the spillover event. Well, that's not that's um, that's not the spillover, but it's part of this chain. For mm -hmm. instance, that particular um, outbreak that had happened in the village, their village nearby. Uh, let's see, I was there in 2000. That was probably July of 2000. I still have that notebook. And this outbreak occurred in 1996, if I recall. So it only happened four years earlier. It had happened, it had begun with some young boys from the village going out to hunt for meat mm -hmm. in the forest with their dogs. And they came back with a chimpanzee, a dead chimpanzee. And they said, hurrah, hurrah, you know, we've got this meat. People in the villages there do eat chimpanzee and they're desperate for protein. Bush meat, bush meat, right? So they come back with this chimpanzee and then suddenly everybody starts to get sick. Everybody who, had a, who helped butcher the chimpanzee, everybody who helped cook and eat the chimpanzee got sick. Um, uh, and some of them were, were taken down the river to a regional hospital. Some of them stayed in the village. I think about 30 people died, terrible fevering deaths, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily as bloody as you've heard about, but terrible deaths. Right. Um, and, uh, and then the disease detective came, detectives came in in their, in their white hazmat suits um, to investigate this, and they did the epidemiological sleuthing, and they heard the story about the chimpanzee, and they figured out that the chimpanzee was infected with Ebola. So I knew that whole story. Chimpanzee mm -hmm. can be infected with Ebola. Gorillas can be infected with Ebola. Don't eat gorilla meat if you find a dead gorilla in the forest. You didn't need to tell me that twice. Right. Uh, uh, but then there is the ultimate host, the reservoir host. What was that? Still unknown. So when I first focused in on this, there was the mystery. The reservoir host of Ebola was still unknown. It uh -huh. came out of some creature. It got into a chimp. It got into a gorilla. People scavenged the meat. They got sick. That's how at least several of the, the remote village Ebola outbreaks have happened in Central Africa. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a mystery there. There was a, a detective story of trying to figure out originally there where this came from. There was a detective story. And, that's, and the book Spillover is filled with detective stories. Right. When there's a new disease, a mysterious new disease, uh, the first thing scientists do is say, what's causing this? And then maybe they find a new virus. Mm -hmm. And they say, we've never seen this virus before. It's a, for instance, a novel coronavirus. Where did it come from? Uh, we've never seen it in humans before. And then some people deal with the, the medical and the public health side. But the, the people that I've paid attention to deal with that mystery story. This new virus had to come from somewhere. Right. I have a chapter in Spillover entitled, Everything Comes From Somewhere. I thought that was really interesting. Like... You're, you're right, like a virus doesn't just appear out of nowhere, it has to come from an it has animal. To come or from somewhere. And viruses can only exist in, viruses are not cellular creatures. They're little packets of DNA or RNA wrapped in, in protein and lipids, mm -hmm. um, little capsules that can reproduce themselves if 
they are in the cell of a cellular creature, animal, plant, fungus, bacterium, or one of the little microbial uh, cellular creatures. This might be a dumb question. Has there been a plant to human spillover event? Not, not, that, not that is known. Okay. Um, I looked for that. Um, the people looking for the Ebola reservoir looked at plants. They looked at insects. Uh, they looked at spiders. Mm. Uh, there's a guy, wonderful fellow named Robert Swanepoel in South Africa. I went to South Africa to talk to him about this. Spent two days listening to him talk. He was the one who did some of the early systematic um, searching in his laboratory for the Ebola virus in all these different kinds of creatures. And as of this point, as far as I know, it has still not been found in a reservoir host. Wow. What people say, well, there's evidence of Ebola and this or that. What they're talking about is a fragmentary evidence, like uh, use PCR testing and you can get evidence of stretches of genome. You can do other things that, uh, that give you evidence of antibodies against Ebola that show that this organism has been exposed to Ebola. But the, the gold standard is to be able to isolate live virus out of that creature. As far as I know, in terms of most of the different kinds of Ebola, there are several different kinds of Ebola, mm. that gold standard has not yet been met to identify a reservoir host, although large fruit bats are certainly the leading suspects. Yeah. Something that you, you said in your book that I thought was interesting was, uh, I guess, the way Ebola kind of pops up and kills a bunch of people and then disappears for a while. Yeah. Uh, makes it very hard to kind of track it. So right. it's, a, it's a good thing for health that with, you know, it's not constantly killing people, but it's kind of a bad thing for the science of trying to figure out where it's That's coming right. from. And it's sort of a catch-22, as these right. researchers told me when I was asking them about this. Um, when there's an outbreak, then it's a medical emergency, and everybody is focused on isolating cases and, and treating people, trying to prevent right. the spread, medical and public health issues. And they, as they say, you can't do science under those circumstances. You can't go in there and tell people, well, never mind that you're dying. I'm trying to find the reservoir host of this creature. Right. That doesn't happen. And then when the outbreak is over, the money goes away and the public interest goes away. Right. Oh, uh, we, we fixed it. Yeah, it's, it's gone. over. And that, um, if, uh, well, this thing, this coronavirus has gone so far now that it's going to be difficult for people. Once it's under control, once we've dealt with it, no matter how, terrible it's been or maybe not so terrible it's going to be difficult but not impossible for people to forget mm -hmm. uh, how unprepared we were for this one um, we need people to remember and be better prepared for the next one that's the crucial thing with whether it's ebola or coronavirus or whatever i mean sars 2003 right a novel coronavirus coming out of a bat in china killed 774 people and we were lucky and they controlled it. Mm -hmm. The disease detectives that I know, including some that worked that outbreak, say that was the scariest one. That was much more scary than Ebola because it could have gone so big. Why, right. did, why didn't it? Did it burn out as people, some people say? No, SARS didn't burn out. SARS was stopped, was stopped by good fast science, good rigorous public health, um, centralized, um, strong governments and, and healthcare systems in the cities that it happened to get to 
and luck. But it was a lesson 17 years ago, SARS, coronavirus. The lesson went unlearned. We were completely unprepared for this one. Well, let's start talking about this one then. Um, I, I know that like Ebola kills a lot more, has a lot higher death rate, but it's a lot harder to transmit. Whereas mm -hmm. this is, what's the R, is it the R value? Is that what it's called? The, the, the number of people that can infect other yeah, people? Yeah, it's called the, the basic reproduction rate or the, okay. yeah. Uh, and and they, the, in, in the mathematical models, they, they use an R with a, with a zero hanging low in front of it, which they call R naught. N-O-U-G-H-T as in, yeah. uh, you know, R nothing. R is zero. That's the basic reproduction rate. Um, uh, meaning in a naive population, an unexperienced population, that's the rate at which each single case infects additional cases. So if, if R naught is three, that means every infected person coming into a naive population infects on average three people. And that's an important number. It's not yeah, the only yeah. important number, but it's one of them. Well, I'm going to assume being who you are and what you, what you do, you've talked to a lot of experts and you're, um, you're, you're pretty much an expert in this. <laughs> I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy who listens to experts. Okay. Well, that, well, that's, I like to think of myself like that. Let's just start with um, how bad is this? It's, it's an unfortunate um, coincidence. And I don't think it's an etymological um, fact that the words pandemic and panic sound so similar. <laughs> That's unfortunate. There's a subconscious thing that our brains do when we yes. hear that. Pandemic, okay, so I should panic in the pandemic. Right. Well, no, panic is, panic is really counterproductive. Uh, sometimes people ask me, how scared should I be? How worried should I be? Mm -hmm. I don't want to be condescending, but I, I don't like to answer that question. I tend to politely say that's the wrong question the right mm -hmm. question is what should i do you know don't lose right. sleep get a good night's sleep you know even if you're going to die tomorrow get a good night's sleep some people say uh you know i published this 500 page book spillover about emerging diseases scary viruses and people who haven't read it sometimes say oh okay well what's the bottom line are we all going to die <laughs> and without wanting to be snotty i say yeah, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're all going to pay taxes and we're all going <laughs> to die. But most of us are not going to die of Ebola. Right. Or, or even novel coronavirus. Um, so how bad is it? Well, uh, there's a high degree of unpredictability because A, uh, human behavior is unpredictable mm -hmm. and B, the evolution of this kind of virus is unpredictable. So you put those two kinds of unpredictability together and you get a wide range, wide range of possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. Even now, when the world is alert to this, the alarm bells are ringing loud, we still don't know, A, how, how people and communities and societies and nations are going to behave, how we're going to respond, whether it's going to be smart or stupid, uh, slow or fast. Uh, lucky or unlucky, and B, we don't know what the virus is going to do. Is the virus going to change? Is it going to adapt? The more people it infects, the more times it is replicated, the more times it replicates, the more times it, it varies in terms of its genome, mm -hmm. the more times it varies, the more chances it has to adapt in new ways. 
which direction might it go? It might possibly adapt toward being less virulent, but not necessarily. There mm -hmm. are cases that show possibilities both ways. So back to your question, um, how bad is this? Um, it's really a serious situation. Why is it really a serious situation? Because it could be really, really bad. Will it necessarily be? No, not necessarily if we do the right things and if we are lucky. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a coin that somebody has flipped and you can look at it flashing and turning in the air and you don't know whether it's gonna land heads or tails. And uh, if you can't predict that, you can't predict what's going to happen with this outbreak, with this pandemic. <laughs> we have to start using that word now. Yeah, uh, well, so yeah we're, we're allowed to start using that word. And it's now, yes. it's now official. I mean, allowed, quotation marks. It's now right. official. I try to be careful. You know, the, the, the big Ebola event in West Africa of 2014, which I got pulled into, again, a lot as a talking head. Sure. Um, I tried to be careful to remember not to call that a pandemic because that was a really bad first it was, first first there's an outbreak and then if it if it spreads and through a country it, it's an epidemic and if it spreads to a lot of countries on different continents it's a pandemic you know there are no absolutely firm boundaries or definitions but that's sort of the consensual way those words are used yeah Ebola 2014 was not a pandemic. This is a pandemic. Yeah. Well, you were saying earlier that there were some people that were um, uh, ringing some warning bells about this back in late December, early January. What were the what were the facts about this particular virus that got people so concerned so early? Like, what is it about this that really stands out ab amongst flu and all the other things that are out there? Um, well. Here's the way I understand it. Okay. Um, from what's been available to read, uh, in early middle December, people who worked in the Huanan wholesale seafood market in the city of Wuhan started getting sick, mm. fever, other symptoms, and then some of them getting really sick, and then a few of them died. Apparently, according to which source you look at, somewhere between 27 and 40 people got really sick. Scientists, uh, well, not scientists, but people in the hospitals started noticing this, including that wonderful man, the, the ophthalmologist, uh, and I should remember his name. Dr. Lin or Lee or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, uh, and we should... When you put this together, get his name so we can yeah. insert, so you can insert his name. That wonderful ophthalmologist um, who became the first whistleblower. Right. He started telling friends, "Look, there's weird shit going on at my hospital. People are coming in with this febrile, coughing disease, uh, and it's not flu, and we don't know what it is, uh, but it's scary." And he told some of his friends about that. And that started to spread the word mm -hmm. and he got in trouble. He got, right, yeah. got muzzled for that. He got in trouble for, I think, for putting something online about that. Mm -hmm. And then of course he got sick and died. He became the sort of the first martyr. And he was pretty young. And he was young and, and, and 
had no comorbidities as far as I know. Right. Yeah, he was young and healthy. Um, yeah, so all these people that are like, oh, I'm young, it's not going to affect me. It's like, you know, yeah, the, the guy who sure. blew the whistle. Yeah, yeah. Um, he may also have gotten a large initial dose of the virus. Oh, sure. Because he was in that hospital. Yeah. I, we don't know. Anyway, so that's what, um, so then on New Year's Eve, um, the disease detectives that I know started getting bulletins saying, uh-oh, there seems to be a new one happening in Wuhan, China. That was on New Year's Eve. And was that the, the, the majority of the fear is just this is a brand new thing and we know nothing about it? That's yes. kind of and that it's spreading was, and it's scary? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That was the sort of signal that they got. Um, and I don't think at that point anybody was using the word coronavirus because I don't think the virus had been isolated. Mm. But then pretty soon after that, the virus was isolated thanks to um, a heroic team of scientists, I believe at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and uh, so then there was a, um, they isolated the virus and they sequenced it. So then there was a molecular sequence and it was clear from the molecular sequence that it was a coronavirus. Um, related to SARS, but not too closely related to SARS, um, but SARS, MERS, right. the, and this, they all belong in this family of coronaviruses. Now, coronaviruses are on the watch list because they're one of the families of viruses that evolve quickly. And hmm. scientists have been saying that for a long time. I've been saying that for eight years um, because scientists were telling me, watch out for coronaviruses. They, they mutate frequently, therefore they evolve quickly, therefore they have the potential to jump from an animal, non-human animal host into a human and cause real problems. So this is then early January and people are saying, uh-oh, it's a new coronavirus. Oh boy, we remember SARS. Mm. We gotta take this really seriously because it could, it seems to be highly transmissible um, and it has, um, it has a case fatality rate that's considerably higher than the flu. And if it spreads as far as the flu, that, that means disaster. So that was, that was early mid-January that yeah. the experts were saying that to one another. And then yeah. they were saying, the disease detectives were saying, well, where did this come from? Um, you know, it was in this live animal, this market, this so-called wet market in China. Evidently, it was there. Mm. Uh, what did it come from? And then some scientists, some, again, Chinese scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology with um, international partners, including some of the d disease detectives I know, such as Peter Dashak of EcoHealth Alliance, they published a paper noting that um, this was very similar, very, very, very similar to a virus that had been found three years earlier in bats in a cave in Yunnan, China. So then they said, okay, we think this is a bat-borne coronavirus, mm. and that's how it got into the market. Did it spread to 27 people or 40 people originally from one little tiny bat the size of a mouse? Probably not. So it must have gone into another animal, caught hold there, replicated. That animal became an amplifier host, that's mm. the term. And then that animal probably somehow spread it to a number of humans, probably by getting butchered and 
know, yeah. and, and sold. So, so the bat, is the bat considered the reservoir host or the, the other animal that you were just talking about? Is that the considered? bat is considered the reservoir host. The okay. other animal is considered the amplifier. Amplifier, host. okay. Yeah. And, and so that could have been a pig or a... Could have been a pig or anything. in the case of SARS, they, they reckon that it was a, a civet, um, right. which is a kind of mammal. Um, and in this case, there's been speculation. There was speculation at one point that it was a snake, but that seemed to be wrong. Mm. It seemed wrong to a lot of scientists immediately. And then I saw some speculation that it was a pangolin. Right, the scaly uh, anteater scaly looking thing, thing that looks yeah. like it looks like an anteater or an, or an armadillo, but is a unique group of animals. I think there are six species. Most of them are endangered. They're traded. Yeah. They're highly valued for their scales, but also for their meat. They really suffer from this live animal for food and live animal hmm. for medicine trade uh, that's so big in China. Hmm. So there was uh, there was one some speculation that it was a pangolin. I don't know if that hypothesis has been confirmed yeah they haven't figured that out yet I don't what think the so. amplifier host was yeah, i don't think so okay at least i haven't seen that scientific paper case fatality rate or case fatality risk is essentially the the death rate right. and basic reproduction number is this r naught thing how many cases from each case right and um and that's pretty high with this particular one well if they're and just high enough just okay. um, they think last I saw uh, they were saying between two and three. So okay. you know if it's if it's two to three, it means your your pandemic is growing constantly. Uh, and when the numbers get big, the growth gets big. Um, what happened with SARS is that they managed to get that R naught down below one. And when you get it down below one, so that you've contained the cases, and each case is not infecting two right. other cases right. then you can get a handle on it okay and we do not have that yet we do not have that yet we're probably not going to have that with this we're probably going to have to deal with it spreading through our communities and our countries because mm -hmm. it's already in so many places um, we're going to have to deal with it by slowing um, the rate of infection so that our healthcare systems can deal with um, the number of cases that we have over a longer period of time. Yeah. There, so all of the social, the social distancing, you know, the hand washing um, and all of that, um, that's, that's really important because that can slow the rate at which it moves through communities. And if it moves through communities more slowly, then that means there are more likely to be hospital beds for both your grandfather and your grandmother. And if it moves through quickly, right. there might only be one hospital bed open for those two people you love so much. And that's what they're dealing with in Italy right now, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. They're dealing with horrible choices and horrible situation in Italy. We haven't in the United States dealt with anything like this, maybe since the Spanish flu or something, right? I mean, right. yeah, that's right. Yeah, the so-called Spanish flu, which probably didn't which, come from. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. The flu. I know the story about that is because Spain was was neutral in World War One, and so they were reporting on it, so it became known as the Spanish flu. That's very good. Yeah, your memory is better than mine. Also, that's, that's I wasn't quite, a, that's quite an event, quite a story. Yes, and and this is 
this is the biggest thing since then in terms of infectious disease in America, in, in the world. You know, so it's, it feels like every other year there's should, another should, SARS, should, there's let, another... I, I should clarify what I just said. Go ahead. The biggest thing I said is this is the biggest thing since the flu of 1918 in terms of infectious disease in the world. That's incorrect. Okay. There are a couple of things, um, including something called AIDS, <laughs> that are important to I've remember. Heard of it. Yeah. 35, are we up at 35 million deaths at this point? Mm. Um, so, and, and that is a zoonotic disease also that came originally from one chimpanzee, a yeah, virus yeah. that came from one chimpanzee has caused the, the entire, virtually the, the entire AIDS epidemic. So we have dealt with other horrible epidemics. Um, the, the AIDS epidemic has been a slow motion epidemic because the disease kills slowly and because it transmits relatively slowly. This is a fast one, similar to the 1918 influenza. With your experience covering this in other countries around the world, like, is there any country that really handles it well or is best prepared for it or? Well, there are countries that learn from the SARS epidemic mm -hmm. uh, and places that learn, cities that learn, Hong Kong learned, Taiwan learned, Jap Japan apparently learned pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, South Korea, I think, learned somewhat. Uh, we learned zero from <laughs> SARS. Uh, it seems. Uh, will we learn from this? I sure hope so. Mm. I sure hope so. Um, but, but, but you're saying there is stuff we need to learn. Yes. Prepared. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There is, there is, there is stuff we need to learn. There are, there, there are lessons that should have been heated after SARS and have got to be heated after this one. Because why? Because this one is not the last one. There will be right. more. I think that's that's a point I will definitely want to make in the video is that this is kind of just the beginning. That was something I kind of got from from your book as we I think that's something a point that you made and correct me if I'm saying this wrong, but that as we uh, encroach into more animal territories around the world and yeah. become more dense, this is just something that's going to keep happening, right? Yes, it is, and that's that's what I say in my book. I mean, this is not an independent event that is happening to us. This is part of a pattern, a consistent drumbeat of events that reflect things that we are doing. Mm -hmm. And it's been going on at least since 1961. I can recite a whole list of zoonotic outbreaks that either were bad or could have been bad. Um, viruses coming from wildlife, getting into the human population, killing people, either a few or a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and in most cases, it's because, why? Because do those animals seek out humans to give them the virus? Does the virus seek out humans? No. Viruses yeah. respond to opportunity. Um, they don't have goals. They don't have purposes. They respond to opportunity. They do evolve. Yeah. Um, and, and if a human um, kills a chimpanzee and butchers it, it is presenting itself as an alternate host for whatever virus is living in that chimpanzee. It is mm -hmm. giving that virus an opportunity to jump to a new host. And, and much more virus, populous host. Exactly. If the yeah. virus happens to jump from chimpanzees into humans, that virus and, and finds that it can evolve and, and adapt and replicate and transmit from human to human, then that virus has won the sweepstakes because mm -hmm. chimpanzees are, you know, are, are threatened and their numbers are decreasing and our numbers are huge and increasing. Mm -hmm. So it, that virus achieves great evolutionary success if it makes that opportunistic 
leap. So my dog sneezed the other day. Am I going to die? Joe, are you going to die? Yes. I'm sorry to say you are going to die. <laughs> oh, we're back to that question again. <laughs> Maybe not for 40 years until you step in front of a bus. I hope so. But probably not because your dog sneezed on yeah. you. There is talk about dogs. I think there was one oh, case. Really? Yeah. Oh, there is. Yeah. There's one case um, that is of greater interest to social media than it is to science, I believe, um, where uh, somebody found um, evidence in the nostrils of a dog of coronavirus. Now, finding evidence doesn't necessarily mean finding live coronavirus that was replicating and getting ready mm -hmm. to jump out on the next time that dog sneezes. It might just mean that that dog was exposed, um, and lots of dogs will get exposed to this. And few, if any of them, are likely to come down with the disease COVID-19, yeah. let alone spread it to anybody else, because dogs are different enough from humans. And this virus um, may have passed from a bat into a human, but that does not mean it can pass from a human into a dog. So what is it about bats? You may have spoken about this in your book, but what is it about them that makes them such great reservoir hosts? It seems like I keep hearing that over and over again. A couple of things are relevant uh, to the question, why bats? And the, and the question, why bats, is asked because bats seem to be overly represented as reservoir hosts right. of scary new viruses. Seem to be overly represented. Now, that involves two things. One, bats um, are the most diverse order of mammals that exists. Oh, okay. There are a lot of different kinds of bats. One in every four species of mammal is a species of bat. Wow, okay. One I knew it was a four. lot, but that's a lot. Yeah, one in four. So they seem to be overrepresented, maybe because they're overrepresented in the diversity of mammals. Okay. But they probably are overrepresented even beyond that. Why else? Well, uh, they may carry more viruses, more active viral presence than the average mammal. Why would that be? Well, they live a long time. A little bat um, can live up to 20 years. Oh, wow. okay. A little mouse is going to live two years if it's lucky. Yeah. A little bat might live 20 years. Uh, roosting how? Well, roosting with 60,000 other bats, um, like a big carpet in a cave, yeah. wall of a cave, you know, cuddled in there, three bats deep with their babies hanging to them and their, you know, other bats on all sides. That's a great environment for uh, exchanging viruses. You talk about social distancing. That's not social <laughs> distancing. Yeah. Uh, so bat viruses are passed probably very readily from one bat to another. And then finally, their immune systems seem to be different. And seem, it seems probable that their immune systems might tolerate the presence of alien DNA or RNA, such as an infection, an, mm. a viral infection, might tolerate that presence of alien DNA or RNA more than the average mammal immune system. Why is that? Well, possibly because bats are the only mammal that fly. Flying puts a lot of stress on their metabolism. Putting stress on their metabolism, in some cases, seems to release free DNA from their own cells, cells getting beat up and broken open. Free DNA floating in their bodies, even if it's their own, uh, can possibly be a target of their immune systems. So if bats had rigorous immune systems like us, they might be suffering from autoimmune disease most of the time. Mm. So they seem to have downregulated immune systems. 
everything I just said is hypothetical at this sure. point, but it's one of the possible explanations. I've always liked bats. And I like bats too. They're, they're pretty cool. Um, but I remember one time I was working downtown and uh, I was walking a couple of blocks to get some food. And I, I was about to cross the street. I was waiting for the light to turn green. And I, and I saw on the other side what looked like a, looked like a baseball cap or something, just kind of like doing this on the ground. And as I got closer, it was a bat that was on its back and its wings were kind of out like this and it was freaking out and something yeah. was wrong. So I kept walking. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this was years ago, I'm just saying, but like, um, well, probably, uh, probably a wise move because bats also carry um, probably more than their share of rabies. That's what I was thinking. Relative yeah. to, you know, some other animals. I mean, um, raccoons in the Eastern US are inflicted with a lot of rabies. Foxes might have rabies. Um, skunks, maybe. Bats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's always something that you need to think about. I mean, when I was a kid, one of the nuns from the Catholic school I went to, who knew that I was a nature nerd, brought a bat to school in a jar to give to me that they had caught in the attic of their convent. She brought this live bat and she gave it to me. Uh -huh. and of course, I took it home and put it in a cage in my bedroom and tried to feed it. My parents, my saintly parents said, yeah, okay, it's another thing in your bedroom. And they let me. I can remember taking this bat out of the cage at one point, wearing a couple of, uh, wearing knit gloves, like, you know, those knit, knit gloves. Uh -huh. And this poor bat, I didn't know how to take care of it. I didn't know what it needed. I only uh -huh. had it for about a day, but I, I handled it at one point with these knit gloves and it went like this, like that. And it bit down and it bit right through the knit glove and missed my finger. And at that point I thought, I think this bat deserves his freedom. <laughs> Not the so best. Kind of but the other thing about the bat that you saw on the ground, it might have been a healthy bat that simply um, couldn't fly up off of the ground because bats oh. generally cannot, they can't stand on their feet like right. a crow and get air under their wings and take off because they can't stand on their feet at all. So bats can only take flight by dropping from some kind of a height. I've run into that too, a bat on the ground flapping around. I ended up putting it on a broomstick and running around in the yard trying to, you know, to throw it up yeah. in the air and give it a little chance to get some air under its wings. I think that I succeeded when I did that, but I can't remember. <laughs> Just throw it up into a tree. I actually put a bat box behind our garage back here and I was reading up about what you just said that they have to have like 12 feet or something to be able to mm -hmm. swoop down. Because there's some in our neighborhood. We'll go walk the dogs and I see some flapping around and, and they none of them have taken up residence here. They don't you like don't my house. Bats, no bats in your bat box yet, huh? I don't know what to do. Um, um, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but like, why don't we wrap up by, um, I want to do kind of a look at best worst case scenario thing. Like, so let's just say the social distancing works and, and everybody's washing their hands the right way and we we're able to manage it. What does that look like? And then what does the opposite of that look like where people okay. just don't take it seriously in it? Um, there's, there's a very interesting article in the New York Times today by Sherry Fink, a wonderful okay. um, science and medical writer, um, S-H-E-R-I, Fink, uh, works for the New York Times, has also authored some interest, one interesting book that I know of um, on this question. It's a question that was discussed at the CDC. The CDC called together some of their mathematical modelers, also some academic mathematical modelers, put them on conference calls beginning, I think, in mid-January. 
and they started saying, look, let's get some models and see what the best case and the worst case scenario is of this. Mm -hmm. And they and they continued these meetings. Their findings um, have not been released to the public. Sherry Fink got a hold of some of this and reported it in the Times today. I'm I'm now citing from memory. She was talking mostly about the worst case scenario. And I believe they said the worst case scenario um, might be uh, somewhere between 96 million and 150 million Americans infected. This is somewhere. the best case? That's worst case. It's worst case. Okay, sorry. Yeah. But that's ha you know almost half of the population, yeah. 150 million Americans. Um, and to the best of my memory, um, um, in terms of deaths, the worst case scenario was between a half million and 1.7 million, according to their modeling. But that modeling may have been done in February. Mm -hmm. Things are changing fast. Anyone who's interested in this question, worst case scenario and the CDC modeling, they should find Sherry Fink's article in the New York Times of Friday the 13th, 2020, 13th of March, 2020. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I, I think I think that gets me everything I'm, I'm looking for here. Um, trying to think of something else. I'm sure I'll think of it as soon as the, the, we stop talking, but... Uh, I really do appreciate you doing this. Uh, you certainly didn't have to, and this this has been really cool. Um, I will now go wrap myself in saran wrap <laughs> and never talk to anybody again. Uh, good luck with that. Good luck. <laughs> Joe, um, um, stay healthy, stay sensible, mm -hmm. and keep smiling. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Good <laughs> to talk to you. I right, appreciate it, David. All right, thanks for watching that. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you stuck around all the way to the end, if you're watching me talk right now, you are a very special human being, and I like you. I mean that. So yeah, this video's coming at you without a sponsor, and videos like this apparently are being demonetized on YouTube, or at least at the time that I'm recording this, they're being demonetized. So if you want to throw a buck in the tip jar as a thank you or whatever, I can point you to my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Um, look, I totally get it if you can't do it right now. Times are really uncertain. Don't worry about it. I still like you. But yeah, this, uh, this coronavirus situation is not going anywhere for a while. So uh, if you're interested in hearing some more interviews from people in the know, I think I'll be doing some more of those in the future. Or I might talk to people who are experts in totally different subjects because I think we're going to get pretty tired of hearing about COVID-19 after a while. Totally get that. And I might actually use this platform and these kinds of interviews to maybe... I don't know, raise money for coronavirus charities. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. But yeah, thanks again for watching. Thanks again to David for uh, taking the time to talk with me. And uh, yeah, let's just, uh, let's just get through this thing together. Just keep smiling, that's all I can say. Love you guys, take care.